What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where we have reached the letter P. My name is Tom Butler and as Brendan is still currently moving house, I've recruited not one, but two rogue agents to tackle the filmmakers and characters of the Bond world that fall under the 16th letter of the alphabet. So returning for his second appearance on the podcast is the author of Catching Bullets, Memoirs of a Bond Fan. It's the personable and popular Mr. Mark O'Connell. Hey, I like rogue agent. I'll live with that. I'm going to get that tattooed somewhere. So yes. Hi, everyone. (laughs) And making his long-awaited James Bond A to Z podcast debut, it's the brains behind the popular cinema-savvy YouTube channel. It's the playful and proficient Mr. George Aldridge. Lovely to be here. And proficient, I will take that. (laughs) So um, if you've been listening to the podcast the last few weeks, you'll know that we're after your underappreciated James Bond movie moments for our 60th anniversary special. So if you are wanting to get involved, do an audio clip under two minutes long, telling us who you are, what the moment is, and email it to us at podcast at jamesbond.co.uk and we will include those in our anniversary specials. So let's crack on with the podcast. There's a preposterous amount of topics to cover tonight, including some popular characters, some powerful creatives, and we'll be paying a visit to the home of Bond. But to kick things off, there's a young lady in Santiago I want you to meet, George. Yes, Pete Fort Paloma of course, played by Anna Diamas and introduced in No Time to Die that was released last year, a CIA agent based in Cuba. And of course, she joined James Bond on the mission at the start of the film. One of the scene-stealing moments from the film, I think a lot of people would be in agreement with, and with it being essentially one scene we had her for, there's not much known about the character before or after um, it takes place. And what is fascinating is that we know she is a she's had three weeks worth of training, uh, which is a, a very big moment for a lot of people. Um, and I guess we can also say with this, I know you covered it on the episode on No Time to Die. Originally, it was meant to be Felix Leiter that joined Bond for the Cuba set pieces. Do you think three weeks training is that she's only joined the CIA three weeks ago or that she's been training for three weeks for this specific mission? That's a very good question. I... I feel like it's been three weeks worth of training since being in the CIA. Uh, that's how I've envisioned it. I don't know if I'm by myself in that theory, but I'm interested that it might have been for that one single mission. Because it is a bit of an ad hoc mission, isn't it? Um, so it, that, that line's always confused me a little bit. I do. It's a funny line, but um, that's confused me a little bit. 
Well, I wonder if it's almost Phoebe Waller-Bridge putting in that, oh, she's only been in the job for three weeks, and then she does this amazing sequence. I mean, the whole bounce of that set piece is like, I was chatting with someone yesterday, and they said, if Bond 26 can be like a two-hour version of that Paloma sequence, then we'll be off to the races in rather brilliant style. Yeah, I paid yeah. that money to see that. Mm. I, I mm. think a lot of people wouldn't. Tom, we were at the, the premiere as well, and all of that scene had the big cheers. A lot of people were sort of invigorated in those opening scenes. And for the sort of opening third of the film, I think it was a very good way to get us started. Obviously, to some, it, it never peaked past that moment, but it's a really interesting conversation piece for No Time to Die. And I guess, you know, almost a year on since it's released, it's still spoken about. And it, I would say she's gone on to become an immediately iconic character. Mm. Mm. Absolutely, and she, yeah. yeah and she, and she's actually doing quite well, you know, in sort of Hollywood. She's got the Marilyn thing coming up, the Grey Man, uh, uh, Night Clerk. She's kind of not every Bond actress launches, but sometimes uh, often the ones that become like Eva Green, they their their sort of uh, their moment was already starting when they did Bond, and I think that was definitely the case with Arbus. And I, I it's a joy to see her sort of carrying on i think she might be a name we'll all know about for quite a while absolutely i'm, I'm just going to go over her costume as well so we did a bit of research on this and i've mentioned iconic today I, I think the image of her with the guns was across the entire marketing campaign in the dress and what was quite interesting researching this is that the this fashion designer michael lasordo uh, designed the dress originally for the series Shit's creek now i've never seen this uh, and it was for a wedding with the character of alexis oh my god they I love that redesigned. show. <laughs> Are you familiar with it? Because I've yeah. never seen it. So, and now you've I've said s- that she's that is totally the thing. The whole show is actually very predicated inadvertently on costumes and uh, not outlandish costumes for a lot of the women characters. But it's it's very aware of its costume choices. Sorry to cut in there, but that's a, that's a brilliant um, uh, bit of triv there. No, it's it's really interesting, sort of finding this out and. What they essentially did, the main redesign was, of course, the change of colour to Midnight Blue. And what surprised me more than anything in this era of the 007 store and, and their incredible prices, you can actually purchase the the costume from this film directly from the designer uh, for 1790 Australian dollars, which equates around just over £1,000 uh, in here in the UK, which I think is about £200 more expensive than Odd Jobs Hat which is a very surprising and random bit of trivia. Um, But I've also found uh, some comments from the costume designer for the film. Uh, Apologies on the pronunciation there. Satira Lala. And she essentially spoke about the uh, costume she created for some of the female characters. And she said, they are strong, self-possessed, important, plot-driving women all in their own right. And this was a really fantastic opportunity to be able to put a stamp on those kind of female characters in a Bond film. There was a lot of positive reinforcement and female awesomeness that was so present with this film. It was so heartening for me to be able to, in this moment, be the person with dressing these strong female leads. And that was in an interview with Forbes from last year before the film came out. Yeah, I mean, that costume, it's fantastic. There's definitely a touch of the Pam Bouvier about it um, in that, uh, you know, she can wear it to a cocktail party, but then also wear it to for, for kicking ass and... Uh, as her character's only in on screen for one one um one scene really um they really made the most of it i think yeah and taking a look at uh anna diamas herself and the first thing i discovered her full name is actually anna celia diamas caso so i can understand why that was shortened for a stage name for her career 
And for those under familiar, she was born and raised in Cuba. Uh, she had grandparents from Spain and later moved back to Madrid at the age of 18 to pursue her career in acting. And what I found fascinating was that she was she took part in a four-year uh, university course in studying drama. And in Cuba, after four years uh, of a degree and you graduate, you have to do three years of community service, which definitely has a different meaning in Cuba than it does in the UK. And that uh, she left just a few months before the degree finished, so she didn't have to do that and could move to Spain. Uh, which I found fascinating. So obviously planning that in the pipeline. And her big breakthrough in Spain was a, a Spanish team drama called El Internado. Uh, translation is The Boarding School. And she starred in six of the seven seasons of the series and was asked to be written out of the show due to being typecast in Spanish roles as teenagers and then would go on to move into LA in 2014. Um, now, I don't know if anybody's seen any of her spanish films or series beforehand but it's quite an interesting career move for her no not seen any of her, her, her spanish language stuff yeah it's it's interesting and, and obviously moving to la in 2014 essentially she got a hollywood agent when she was in spain so she was able to move to america after two months of there and what was a it's been on the news recently with some of her interviews in the build up to the gray man coming out she mentioned that she had to learn her lines phonetically for auditions and actually in her first few films so the first one she did was knock knock which was released in 2015 directed by eli roth and it stars keanu reeves this was her sort of first american language film now i haven't seen this i've heard of it but i know mr butler that you have seen it i have yeah mark have you seen that one no so it's like no. a um it's like a home invasion type movie but it's sort of mm. turned on its head so you know obviously it's normally teenage girls and the and it, and the guy like invades the home, but this is like the guy at home on his own, and he, his house gets invaded by two te- sort of teenage girls, Anna Darmus and, and another girl, and they sort of prey upon his male instincts um, and sort of start seducing him. Uh, but then, like, yeah, they're obviously there for other reasons, and uh, it's actually a really, uh, it's it's a good good little thriller. Actually, it's got a great ending. I seem to remember. Um, and oh, she's really good in it. Really memorable. And then after that, she was in War Dogs, which is a Todd Phillips film. And what I found fascinating, she did an interview in 2019 to Hollywood Reporter talking about the audition. And she said, I wasn't really sure what I was saying. I didn't want to audition for Maria Jr. and Lola and all those kind of things. I wanted to audition for the same parts that everybody else is auditioning for, Um, which is very interesting because when we see stories of sort of foreign actresses coming through to come over, not speak any language, but learn it phonetically, I think it's not just fascinating, but it's a real credit to her that she was able to do that and she ended up taking a four-month full-time english course to sort of improve improve her language skills during sort of war dogs is filming as well which again i think is fascinating for someone sort of so young in an, in another country just learning english on the cuff whilst already being in the industry mm. i've not heard a story like that before the phonetic thing it was also what uh, allegedly javier bardem had to do to get through skyfall a lot of his lines were were you know phonetically worked out because uh he's not always had the best english or you know the best grasp of it saying that my spanish is terrible so uh, he's doing a lot better than <laughs> i am so. and um i guess we could say her big breakthrough role uh was playing joy in blade runner 2049 uh, directed by denny villeneuve and released in 2017 obviously ryan gosling also starred in that another uh companion from the gray man uh but we bring that up quite a few times because there's some other actors that do pop up and after Blade Runner, she would also go on to have the leading role 
which I think was the real breakthrough in Knives mm. Out, of course, Ryan Johnson released in 2019 opposite Daniel Craig, which I find one of the most fascinating stories about Paloma because if I'm being blunt, if Daniel Craig hadn't have had the injury that meant he could shoot Knives Out, I don't think we'd have had Paloma in Bond. I don't think we'd have had Anna Diamas in James Bond, uh, which mm. I think is a really sort of fascinating twist of fate for maybe one of the most cursed Bond films ever made. Was it Was it the injury that delayed it? Or was it Danny Boyle leaving that delayed it? Oh, no. Apologies. It was Danny Boyle because um, then he was able to shoot it in 2018, end of 2018. Apologies. Uh, it was no, the Danny no. Boyle leaving gap. Yeah, no, it was because I remember what happened. Yeah, the film got delayed and then all of a sudden the, there was this hot project with Ryan Johnson and then all of a sudden Dan, Daniel Craig was in it. Um, it felt like um, I think he probably really needed it as well at that stage. Um so um yeah it was it was kismet wasn't it that they met on the on the set and um i think possibly she knew kerry fukunaga already i think i read that somewhere um so i think it was the combination of those two things that led her to be in no time to die yes yeah, so kerry spoke to her about being in no time to die she came to pinewood uh, to audition for the role and at the same time she met phoebe waller bridges and she actually spoke in another interview uh, saying, um, lucky me, all my scenes were written by Phoebe. My dialogue and the energy of the character really comes through like Phoebe comes through. The woman I'm portraying is different than previous Bond girls. It has some bubbles in it. It's really fresh and exciting. And I think that's also one of the the, the, the great things people spoke about with this film is you can tell what scenes were written by Phoebe, which does make a difference from some of the other writers on the Craig era. Mm, mm. And I just think it adds so much more life to the film. Without without doing that feminist in spotlight sort of thing, she's not doing that. She's kind of bringing up everyone's lines and dialogue. There's a, a pace to what she does. I, I always find her economy of punch really brilliant. And I, I was one of the, the happiest people when I found out she was doing the No Time to Die. I've heard that she might be, well, the rumour was that she was having a bigger role on Bond 26. But um, yeah, I wonder if that will come to pass. Well, or Indiana Jones 6. Let's see. Let's really see, um, well i saw so i'm sure it's right there's been the problem with these films that are so delayed and then you know covid and restrictions and production delays kick in it it widens that terrible rumor canyon even yeah. even more and i'm sure i read or, or some saw some notion that the indiana jones is going to the baton is going to be handed on to phoebe waller bridge i i would take that with a pinch of um tunisian sand but uh we shall see <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, that's uh, one of the interesting rumours, and not too long till I guess we, we get a first trailer with that at D23. And um, talking Anna Diamas, kind of very quickly post No Time to Die, obviously it's a very recent film. Um, she starred in the erotic thriller Deep Water, released earlier this year, directed by Adrian Lyon, starred opposite Ben Affleck, and obviously, for anyone unfamiliar, they had a very public relationship that went viral during lockdown. And due to the the media sort of following her with that, she actually left LA and, and moved and now resides in New York, which is completely fair play to her. And at the time of this video coming out, The Grey Man will now be on Netflix, which she stars in, of course, opposite Chris Evans and mm. Ryan Gosling, a potential spy franchise for her to be involved in long term. And I guess the big one is going to be September the 23rd is the film Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe biopic, um, which I think is getting a premiere at either venice or toronto film festival and 
I'd imagine there's a lot of people thinking there might be an Oscar campaign for her if it does end up being good. Yeah. I mean, from going from being doing a lines phonetically to portraying one of the most famous women in Hollywood, uh, it's quite a journey for her, really. Well, both spent time at Pinewood doing pivotal roles. So there is some sort of crude linkages there, maybe. Of course. Yeah. And I've got one final thing to end on is, is a great quote from uh, the magazine called C, uh, which she did interview last year. And she said, I never thought I was going to be a Bond girl. I never thought I was going to be Marilyn Monroe. To even think that I was going to work and anything to begin with was pushing it. But at the same time, I guess I kind of knew it could happen because that's why I ultimately moved to LA, which I thought was a, a really nice way to sort of end this segment with her and potentially where her career is going to go because no doubt she will be an A-lister and it's going to be very exciting to see what film she does do next. Right, to Pinewood. So Pinewood Studios has always been the the golden movie palace of film production and obviously Bond film production. I am deeply besotted by the place and love it dearly. And if you can ever get there, it's it's increasingly harder to do that at the moment in the current sort of Disney regime and the uh, restrictions because you used to be able to sort of wander around a lot more freely. I remember going there in 2008 and kind of wandering slightly wandering on and off the sets of quantum of solace um which was bizarre and I, at one point i didn't even know i was on the the uh one of the rooftop sets um but the studios they've been a pivotal uh gem in the british movie production um i call it the studio belt of home counties we, you know you've got your you had your bray studios your elstree your shepperton's but for me pinewood is still the 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 Golden Child. Uh, it was opened September the 30th, 1936. I remember that because it's my birthday. Well, the September 30th bit, not the 1936. <laughs> um, and it was, it was a, there was a guy called, uh, I think it was Charles Boot, and there was originally uh, a, a sort of um, uh, mansion that they built these sound stages round. And the mansion is, is you know, there was a uh, book done by um, George Perry in 86 on the 50th anniversary, and it was called Movies from the Mansion. And the Heatherden Hall mansion has always been quite a pivotal hub of Pinewood. But they built the sound stages around it, although, unfortunately, Second World War uh, kicked in. And just as the studio was starting to get some business, I think Green for Danger was its first title at the time, uh, it had to shut down production. Um, and then I think it became a little adjunct of the Royal Mint. And there was a famous quip, oh, at last Pinewood is finally making money. Um, so it was used a lot in the war. In fact, a, a, a neighbour of mine, her grandfather was building wooden planes in the prop department at Pinewood during the war. He sadly fell off a wing and later died. So he, he's like this, he's got a weird claim to fame that he died at Pinewood Studios on a war plane. But they would use the studios, not just Pinewood, but they would use the studios during the Second World War to build prop planes because there was there was a lot of fake uh, airfields put the dotted throughout the southeast and that you know if they needed a wooden fake spitfire that the germans could blow up they were often built by the uh the, the studio technicians at shepparton and particularly pinewood but bond's history kicked in uh in uh, february i think it was february the 26th 1962 when the production left um jamaica and came back to uh pinewood cubby broccoli the producer and harry saltzman the producer had already had some history with pinewood um saltzman had shot uh, the iron petticoat there and cubby had done his warwick film held below zero plus others so it was on their radar and at the time Pine, uh, pinewood was also the home of the, the carry-ons which started three years before dr no uh, the doctor series one or two hitchcocks 
um, and some kids' movies. And it, it was an affluent. Well, Pinewood has never been affluent. I think perhaps it's doing okay now, but it, Pinewood always struggled. But Bond came in and set its home up in the various studios there. And, the, you know, to a degree, the rest is Pinewood history. The, they've used the grounds and, you know, it, every corridor, tree, hedge, an entrance within the whole studio set has been used in different Bond films, famously for Russia of Love's um, overture is Spectre Island, which is Heatherden Hall, uh, the mansion that I mentioned before. Octopussy was the ambassador's um, residence there. Uh, a View to a Kill. I, and I, So I got married at Pinewood and I wanted to name each table after something that was not just shot at Pinewood, but shot in the room we were in, that we were in the Heatherden uh, ballroom and the day after I found out that View to a Kill was shot just in the side pool room there I was like do you know how much I would have wanted as a <laughs> to have the top table called A View to a Kill we went with Octopussy which was quite fun for the mother-in-laws to sort of oh we're on the Octopussy table what is, what's an Octopussy like, um, it doesn't matter it's a film it's fine it's a film but um, yeah View to a Kill shot there because View to a Kill uh, famously there was a big production space shortage because after Ridley Scott's fire somewhat uh, the legend set which was a big forest fantasy set that Ridley Scott had there in the uh, summer of 84 kind of caught fire one lunchtime and destroyed the stage so they were suddenly without space to be fair Peter Lamont spun it around very quickly and they regenerated the uh, the phoenix from the flames that is the 007 stage because it's kind of had quite a few flames over the years um, but they used <laughs> they used the pool room for the the Zorin fighting scenes uh, with with Mayday the sort of uh, kickboxing. Is that right? Training, oh, yeah. Wow. It, wow. And, it, and there was this weird moment we we used that room as our green room for the wedding. And I was looking at this water fountain, going, I've seen this water fountain somewhere. And then the next day, a friend said, "This is the room where Mayday's hand, you know, the water fountain is in frame, and her hand kicks in, and then the whole sequence." And I was like. Oh, my God, why did I not know that? So, sorry, a, a view to a kill tangent, but but that's why you have me on. Um, <laughs> Goldfinger was shot down one of the alleyways there. It is now, you know, yeah. there's Goldfinger Avenue. And the studio has named little bits and pieces after Bond over the years. More recently, um, we've got now got Skyfall Avenue and Michael G. Wilson um, Way, or, or I can't remember what the title is. And that's part of the new set. So opposite the original gates of Pinewood, on the other side, it's kind of almost doubled its size partly because of the netflix um infrastructures that are now using pinewood shepperton but also disney um they've they've used it and it's great and i suppose the pinnacle stage that we all want to um uh, shoot a movie in if we're bomb fans is the roger moore stage which was set up in uh, october 2017 as a memorial to sir rog but yeah I'm a big pinewood fan it's had its problems i mean a bit like bond kept you could you could claim that Bond kept British cinemas open in the seventies. You know the Odeons owe a massive debt to Roger Moore in the seventies, but also the production of Bond in the late seventies and early eighties arguably kept Pinewood afloat. There was one time again another neighbour. His dad used to work at Pinewood, and he said it, he went there in eighty three when they were shooting Octopussy, and he could walk around the sets of Superman three and Octopussy, and then not long after Supergirl. With that, and it was just literally they were because it was so unoccupied, it was just really easy to chill and move around there, less less so now. But that's good, it, it's being used, that's why it's harder to walk around there. Um, so yeah, Pinewood and Pinewood continues to be the Bond hub, the production hub. It's quite a spiritual base for the Broccoli's, they don't always have to shoot there. 
Moonraker in 78, 79, chose uh, facilities in Paris for various tax reasons. Um, and obviously in 88, 89, when License to Kill was shooting at Churubusco in Mexico, Pinewood wasn't used, but it, it, it's always been used in post-production and editing and sound mixing. So I, I, I think every Bond film has probably got a Pinewood thumbprint on it somewhere. Uh, GoldenEye, I guess, is the other famous one that shot at a different studio, isn't it? Because um, Yes, and- but even so, the whole there was a lot of... Uh, reels taken back and worked on back yeah they tried it i mean there was this i remember doesn't doesn't kind of get remembered so much but when so also tomorrow never dies found it difficult to get uh uh studio space so they got the uh i think it was a rolls royce factory at frogmore or no 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 rolls royce factory at leavesden but there was another factory at frogmore and it was called eon studios for that for the duration of right suit. and i was like oh eon studios that's that's what they should call pinewood now <laughs> George, you've you've worked at Pinewood as well, haven't you? Yeah, it's it, it's an incredible place. It, it it's film history, and I was very fortunate to work for a company there uh, for a year. So they they resided there, it wasn't directly for Pinewood, and I've just got to say it was it was the highlight of my job every day for a year. You know, going to Pinewood Studios to earn a living working in the film industry that was just incredible and you know not just growing up as a bond fan but a fan of that industry knowing that as a big stars fan and there were star wars films filming there whilst i was there you can't help but take it in every single day of there. if the weather's great you get to walk mm. around the gardens mm. and you walk around the gardens and you think i recognize this from this film or from that film and um mike you mentioned heather and hall our offices were in there so oh, where you know we'd come out and, and that's where you know weddings would be there at the weekends or there'd be private parties there as well across mm. the week and it's just it's just incredible and it's it's exactly what i said you know it is harder to go in there i was very fortunate that i was able to get back in there last year on the day of the bond premiere uh, that mm. was a very very fun moment and even from a a, a sort of two-year gap to, to leaving to going back you could see how much has changed but what I'm very excited for is with the expansions, they're going to be building a, they haven't confirmed it as a museum or an exhibition per se, but there is going to be a area for general public people to finally get the chance to visit. But of course it will be in the new buildings. It won't be the historic landmarks. People won't be able to say, as you, said, you can't go to Goldfinger Avenue, which, you know, you just, if anyone's had the chance to go there or has seen it on behind the scenes footage, if you look down the street and you just know mm. it's the scene from Goldfinger mm. and it's, it's taking in history and again just being there part of the process there's there's nothing quite like it and you know i even with no time to die to jump to it the day the explosion happened at the studio i was actually ill off work so i saw it on the news and just checked in with like everybody i knew and you know there's different stories from everybody and it just it's history just being there you know knowing that you're working on something or something you know this filming that you might not be working on and that's going to be a story as, as time goes by and it, it's just an incredible not advert for the british film industry but it, it's an advert for the film industry as a whole to me mm. i don't think any studio in the world uh can stand up to it and i think anyone in production would probably say the same thing yeah that you're right there is an atmosphere there it's not just that oh they might be doing a bond or a star wars or an indiana jones you when you walk around I, I remember when I first walked around, I, I worked there in, um, on a comedy show that was using the studios there. And I was so made up when I saw the call sheets. I was like, oh, are you okay getting to Pinewood for three weeks? I'm like, yeah, I'm all right getting to Pinewood for three weeks. <laughs> and you walk around and it is like you, you, you're you on that in that opening scene of Roger Rabbit where it's just golf carts and 
costume rails and suddenly you see someone dressed as a Victorian urchin and a robot and it is kind of that everything you want a film studio to be plus the noise and smell of carpentry and timber was was yeah. quite a thing constant noise no wonder you know there's sound uh, stage uh, sound dubbing booths because you don't you'd never shoot there silently and it's just you just look around and you like like you say you just see all these little echoes of well not just bond but carry on and uh, the doctor series uh and it's it's I, i'm i'm excited about the pinewood experience uh studio tourist thing that's opening i think possibly some of its tourist promises and uh, ability to kind of tread tread the bond path might ultimately not fully be as as touted sadly but it's it's great that it's expanded you know there was always this contention about oh we can't build on green belt i'm like i've driven around the fields around there it's it's fine okay we we, we put worse things on green belts and it's it's you know it's a mass like you say it's a massive addition to the the filmmaking you know infrastructure of the world you know when when disney spielberg harrison ford when they're using it you know or, or um james mangold when they're using it for indiana jones 5 that there's a reason for that they could shoot anywhere else they could shoot in america cheaper but they know the artistry and the crews are great and i i i love when i have reason to walk in there and um just just mingle it's it's a it is just a, a beautiful place I was going to say that you've mentioned the people there because Pinewood obviously is, is more than just a set of big buildings with uh, with big lights and green screens in it. It's um, the history of Pinewood is that they used to have you know, all the technicians were part of the studio, weren't they? And then you would go and use all the different departments or what have you. Mm. Now it's much more transient. They, they'll bring people in to do it. But when you go into those workshops on a on a set on a studio like Pinewood, and you see all these art uh, craftspeople creating props and things like that, there is something just magical about that. Um, mm. And seeing all the craftsmen at work and smelling the like you said the sawdust and the the, the vacuum sealed things and uh, it is uh, it's, it's wonderful and all those people that, that do the work there they're just uh, incredibly skilled people and that's why people come to pinewood i guess mm. yeah it, it's the it's there, there's an innocence to it where you know we'd walk around on a lunch break and you know i had friends there that were there longer than me so i'd feel like i was trespassing anytime i went through an alley anytime mm. you'd go through a corner of a studio but no one no one bats an eyelid because they all know you are working there in theory and, you know, you just walk down a corridor and you look to the left or right of you and there'd be iconic images, whether it's royals visiting to to appear on a set. I mean, that happened when Prince Charles visited the No Time to Die set. There was like an email sent around to all the companies that offers saying, if you want to come out and wave to them, you can. It's not really something I did or would want to have done, but knowing that, <laughs> that knowing that's going to be a photo shoot that's gone viral and that's how they announced the, the V8 Vantage and the other cars to be in No Time to Die. It's just, it's an experience and... Yeah, if anyone ever gets the chance, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's an interview, whether it's a tour, if you're ever lucky or they want to do it, any chance any human being is ever going to get to go there, you just got to do it. It's bucket list stuff, and it's yeah. an absolute privilege to be there. One, one little trick is um, I, I had a friend, um, in fact, it was the lady whose uh, father sadly died when he was building planes there. He, um, She goes to TV recordings there. And whilst you don't fully, you know, it's not it's not going to be the James Bond uh, Jurassic Park style tour, but you do get you just you just get the rhythms and the scale of it and the uh, the size of it as well. It always staggers me how every time I go back, it's it's bigger, and I'm like that wasn't there before. 
Um, yeah, it's a, I was so we were very lucky that we got married there because they kind of I don't think we did anything wrong. Um, but we um, they kind of stopped weddings not long after we got wed there. And I was glad of that it meant that we had that little window of time. But I remember our guests were late because they were just it was like it was like it, all the guests were at the gates like Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory sort of <laughs> and we were told to bring passports for security it's like right telling your whole hundred guests you have to bring a passport and it's like why and please no wandering onto the sets no wandering onto any Millennium Falcons um there's one cousin that has that may have to uh, fess up on something allegedly but uh yeah it's it's a it's a great place and I I I, I love it dearly yeah and, and one final thing for me for the Bond fans if you know if you are looking to go there, he said there's recordings. They have a uh, a screening room, the John Barry mm. Theatre, obviously named after John Barry as well. And you can mm. see new films there, older films there. They very rarely do it, but that's an opportunity for people to get the chance to go. And as you said, you know, being on a Bond podcast, the history of Bond, Pymud is so essential to that story and, and mm. what's sort of been with it since. And it's going to be really interesting moving forward to see if the future Bond films will still film there. I think they will. Well, it's yeah, be very interesting. They will, because Eon still own the 007 stage, which which we we haven't mentioned, um, but that was the glorious seventy six built sort of well bigger than a cathedral. It's this massive, uh, you know, sort of um, heavenly cornered hangar of Ken Adamness, and I I love it. And I, I I've, I've still yet to be inside. I've I've kind of gone round it, but not been inside because they're usually blowing things up when I'm there. And it's always a little dangerous. But that's been a massive boost. You know, the, the amount of films that have shot on the 007 stage, Superman three, uh, uh, Tim Burton shot Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. There, they built that whole set there. It's it is the stuff of magic, and it, it's great to see that such physical, practical cinema, you know, still is still needed i think in fact star wars has kind of pushed pushed it back to that practical edge and pinewood's still the star on that but also uh, what also happens though is that pinewood has helped other local studios you know the, the satellite studios so you've got long cross at chertsey and uh, the twickenham studios are still used and uh, so you know kenobi i believe shot in little smaller hub studios around and that you know, Pinewood's not the rival, it's Pinewood is sort of the facilitator of that almost. P is for Powell. Now, which Powell? There's a bit of a story behind this. So when I where I pulled together the list of, of people we're going to cover for the podcast, um, there's a lot of like cross-referencing uh, reference books and stuff. And um, what I put down for this was G. Powell. Um, so I went to, went to do my research and it was like pulling a string, you know, when you pull a, pull the string and everything just sort of, sort of, sort of be, begins to unravel because not only is there a Greg Powell that worked on the James Bond films, but also his brother, Gary Powell. So Greg and Gary Powell are brothers who come from a stunt family and they have a very rich history with the Bond films and the UK film industry. So we've got Greg and Gary Powell, their dad was a stuntman called Nosher Powell, and he had an extensive um, career in stunt uh, work. Um, and he was stuntman on 14 James Bond films from, from Russia with Love up to A View to a Kill. And he also did Casino Royale 67, and he did stand-ins for Roger Moore and for Timothy Dalton. Uh, Greg and Gary Powell's uncle was a guy called Dinny Powell, who did stunts on Dr. No, um, on right up to Goldeneye and Casino Royale. Uh, and Dinny acted... Um, occasionally as uh, the double for Sean Connery and Roger Moore. And then he went on to work on the films of Dalton Brosnan and Daniel Craig. That doesn't stop there. Greg's daughter, Tilly Powell, 
also worked on Skyfall and Spectre and did uh, stunts on No Time to Die as well. So when I put down G Powell, I mean, I just didn't know what I was setting myself up for here. Um, but an incredible family. So I'll just give you a bit of a history on all of them here. So Greg Powell, um, he's an award-winning stunt performer, coordinator and second unit director. His Bond credits include Spy Who Loved Me, For Your Eyes Only, Never Say Never Again, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, World Is Not Enough, Skyfall and No Time to Die. But his bigger, wider credits cover um, Fast and Furious, Harry Potter, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible, Indiana Jones, Doctor Who, The Bill, Superman, Supergirl, and Mark, you'll like this, even Supergran. Um, so in an I'm interview uh, with... Uh, you prefer Supergran, do you? No, Supergirl. <laughs> um, oh, Supergirl. Okay. I, I thought you'd be of a Supergram vintage, but... Um, oh, dare you, but you're uh, very right. You're like very my, right, yeah. Like, like myself. <laughs> Sunday, Sundays um, at four o'clock, I remember. Exactly. Um, so he started off Greg Powell um, uh, doing um, trampoline explosions on the, the Spy Who Loved Me. Um, and he's also in Fiora's Only. He gets shot by Molina with a crossbow. Uh, he did a, a fight with Sean Connery in Never Seen Never Again that was cut that with where he was thrown from a balcony. Um, and he thought because he walked on that, he was going to get in trouble with the, the uh, cubby for working on that one. But he, um, he he worked on Octopussy as well. And then on The World Is Not Enough, uh, he did uh, a stunt alongside his brother, Gary, where, where we crashed through a wall. And yeah, his brother, Gary, uh, is a British stunt coordinator, second unit director, and he has 40 years of experience in the film industry. And he is the one that now works on the James Bond films. He's the one that's sort of quite front and center with with Bond as it is now. Um, in an interview that he did, he said oh, it was follow around in the family tradition or get kicked out. <laughs> His Bond credits include Goldeneye, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough. And he is stunt coordinator on Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, and I think No Time to Die as well. But his wider credits include Red Dwarf, Braveheart, Mission Impossible, Saving Private Ryan, The Mummy, Band of Brothers, Harry Potter, Bourne, Spider-Man. Um, and he said the first stunt he ever did was on a carry-on TV series, which I didn't know there was one. Mm. Um, when he was 10 years old, he said he had to double for someone uh, doing a horse riding stunt, uh, a quite small person. Um, but that was his break. And he did some of the tank driving on Goldeneye. And he also did the famous boat jump in The World Is Not Enough um so talking about that specific stunt on the world is not enough he says when i was performing stunts the bigger the stunts was better the better for me because they would get your heart pounding when i did the barrel roll in the world is not enough it was a pretty tricky thing i was going about 60 miles an hour and i went about 14 foot in the air if the boat hadn't gone over and clipped the sun seeker that that would have been a very nasty result so quite quite a scary uh, thought on that one um talking about working with pierce brosnan he said pierce was great i totally enjoyed my time working with him he really puts the work in uh, and gary powell is known also for his collaborations that he did uh, with martin campbell um, um he also did green lantern uh working with ryan reynolds on that film mm. um so talking from going from being a stunt uh, performer to a stunt coordinator he said it's a natural progression after doing so many years of stunts people just carry on doing the stunts some people carry on doing the stunts themselves but i just got to the point where i just couldn't do what i used to do i was always known for doing a good job so i didn't want to become like the boxer who had one fight too many mm. I so believe that was it yeah 
you there's a great yeah. film and i think you guys have seen it. i know tom you have because i think you interviewed them at the time for yahoo um there's this there's this great uh, documentary called hollywood bulldogs the rise and falls of the great british stuntmen and yes. the, the powells are really like the spine of that documentary it's on Britbox, and i urge you to see it. it was actually genuinely one of the best films i saw last year it was kind of in my mental top 10 and it looks at the stunt man and stunt women fraternity of the British movie scene. And roughly like starting, like you say, like 40s, 50s, Nosha Powell. My God, I want to be called Nosha Powell. You know, <laughs> if you're going to be called anyone, Nosha Powell. And you, I think, wasn't his mother in or someone, that, that, that their elderly aunt or grandmother was also a stuntman. She'd always like be the old lady falling down the stairs in 40s crime capers and yeah the, the whole Powell saga or sorry dynasty is really reinforced in Hollywood Bulldogs and it it looks at that era of of stuntmen through going back to Pinewood through that home county's British studio lens you know the your, your ITC years of Avengers and all the, the Danger Man and all those those TV 60s shows and it the thing that I found just staggering about it was the lack of health and safety so you had, they literally be, oh, we need someone to drive a car into a wall tomorrow. Well, my mate's got a driving license. I oh, will phone him up and he can come in in the morning. <laughs> and it was, it was so casual. I mean, I can understand why some things had to be a little more um, legalized and uh, put a bit more safety into it. But, and, and these guys, it wasn't just in the fifties and sixties. They, like you say, the uh, Gary, uh, Greg Powell, particularly, I think he was the guy that, Parished, uh, well, uh, uh, descended down the outside of the, the Odeon Leicester Square to launch the premiere of Living Daylights, with the 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 ruse being that it was Timothy Dalton arriving for the premiere. And I remember Nico and going, "Welcome, Commander Bond, to Leicester Square." But it was actually uh, one of the pals that did that stunt. So yeah, fascinating. And they're, they're linked with Vic Armstrong, who's obviously one of the big Bond uh, co- uh, stunt coordinators, who was heavily involved in the Brosnans and. The world is not enough. But yeah, if you can, guys, check out Hollywood Bulldogs. It's a, a stunning testament to British pluck. Yeah, yeah, I've not seen that. It's John Spira that directed it. He did mm. L376 for anyone curious about some more behind the scenes stuff. Which is also a great, great film. I love that film. It's 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 got so much attitude, annoyance, and I, I can't believe they got away with the rights and the use. They kind of faked <laughs> cine film behind the scenes stuff. Kind of beautiful. It's yeah, J- John Spira does good stuff. He's got a documentary series uh, called Real Britannia as well, I believe, on Brickbox, which is about the history of British cinema, which um, by all accounts is is great. But I love seeing the behind the scenes extras with the uh, with the British stunt uh, performers, because like you say, they're all just no nonsense, like, you know, get the job done kind of guys. And to hear them telling their stories of, you know, being set on fire and the time they fell off the horse and broke their ribs and stuff, you just think. Proper God. lads. And I, yeah. actually, one of my memories of Pinewood is being going for lunch, going for lunch at the, the hall there. And you'd see around the bar, um, which incidentally was where the Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty was signed. The bar at Pinewood Studios was a major piece of sort of British history happened because uh, it, it was a neutral zone. But when you uh, uh, having lunch there near the bar, they've got their sort of stuntman league jumpers and hoodies on and they've all, they're all holding pints. And I'm, I'm not saying they're drinking on the job. But I thought, oh, God, that's how it used to be in the old days of like all the all the stunt men and women going off for a, a boozy lunch then going back to beat the uh, the whatnots out of each other <laughs> right that's the powells incredible dynasty coffee medium sweet 
two, medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? Piers for Pushkin, General Leonid Pushkin, played by John Rhys Davis. Um, he made one and only one appearance in The Living Daylights opposite Timothy Dalton in his first Bond film and succeeded General Gogol after five appearances from the Roger Moore era. Um, one of the more interesting characters and a lot to find out through the behind the scenes uh, and, of course, the actor as well, John Rhys Davis, a legend in his own right. Um what I sort of found fascinating talking about behind the scenes to begin with, which I didn't know that uh, the actor of General Gogol, Walter Gota, was ill and he was meant to play the role of Pushkin in the film. Of course, he'd been in the ones prior, uh, but due to health, they created the character of Pushkin. And of course, General Gogol appears at the end of the film, which is a lovely moment in that respect. And I mentioned that he'd made one appearance in the, the Bond films. He was in the Michael Francis draft for Goldeneye. Uh, he was sharing a scene with Bond, and, and that didn't go ahead. And there was also uh, claims of a cameo in Licence to Kill, which John Rhys-Davis also declined to take part in, which I found was quite fascinating. Um, and I guess we can say, talking The Living Daylights with his character, he is what's believed to be an antagonist that becomes an ally in the film, uh, very similar to uh, the Fewer Eyes Only. Uh, I know that has happened. There's a lot of repetition with the Bond films, which I think can be a great thing sometimes. And with John Reese davis to me, he just brings a gravitas to every film he's in. Whether that's because I saw this after Lord of the Rings and after Indiana Jones, I don't know. But he's always had a presence as an actor for me. And I found him one of the more interesting characters in The Living Daylights, if I'm being honest. I'm not the biggest fan of that film, but certainly the the fake death, the sequence is probably one of my favorite moments from the film and a really great way at mm. seeing Dalton build a relationship with other characters. I don't know if I'm alone in thinking that. No, absolutely. I love that whole intrigue. I remember as a kid, it was really like, oh, okay, right. You know, it's sort of a bit of subterfuge and twist, which Bond doesn't do enough of sometimes. That's sort of showing us something that actually isn't happening and then turning it on its head. So if we're going to talk about John Rhys Davis, uh, he was born on the 5th of May, 1944, in Salisbury to Welsh parents, and they moved to uh, Tanganyika at the age of three, with his dad being a colonial police officer which I didn't even know there was a job like that, but that was incredible to find out. Um, and his family would eventually move back to Wales and he resided in the United Kingdom until the late 80s where he moved to the Isle of Man and later New Zealand. So he marries his aunt Wilkinson in 1966 at the age of 22. And they had two children before they separated in the 80s, uh, but they did stay close, remained friends until she passed away in 2010. Um, and what I also found interesting, he was one of the very first students at the University of East Anglia, which enabled him to become a co-founder of the Drama Club and eventually won a place at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. The Royal Academy of Dramatic Art has a fair few amount of Bond alumni, but I'll just pick three out for you all. Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton and Diana Rigg. So there's not just Bond royalty there, there's royalty to the, the entire film industry. So it's really interesting to see him on that list with them. And he would then go into start popping up primarily in TV and films across the 70s. One of his big breakthrough roles was in a BBC adaptation of the book I, Claudius, which is focused on the Roman Empire, also starring some British royalty at the time. Brian Blessed, Patrick Stewart, Derek Jacobi, 
And I guess we can say one of his biggest roles came in 1981 as he was cast in Raiders of the Lost Ark and played the role of Salah and would again play him in The Last Crusade in 1989, also starring alongside Sean Connery for that one, which I would argue is probably his most famous role until he appeared in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and for sure. a really interesting one. I've, I, I'm very new to seeing The Untouchables for the first time. Um, but he appeared in a 1993 TV series, which was only a few years after Sean Connery, of course, won an Oscar for that film, which I'm going to guess was just made on the back of there being a very successful film of the same name, the same story. But um, has anybody seen any of his stuff prior to Living Daylights, I guess is my question, that's not Raiders? Don't think so. I've seen his stint on Question Time within the last 10 years, and if you can find it, that's kind of a glorious bit of television i'll just leave it there um but yeah i mean he's quite a he's quite a character and obviously cinema and the entertainment industry needs characters like that but i yeah he's quite a character that's what i'm saying <laughs> yeah Char- character is definitely one of the more interesting terms i think to use for this um if we want to quickly speak about lord of the rings uh, i guess this is you know what he's most famous for with his career now of course he played not just Gimli but Treebeard as well across the three films. Mm. And without getting into in-depth on all the rings, because we know how long they are, one of the more interesting trivia pieces, which I think is one of those sort of trivia pieces that everybody knows now, he was the only member of the Fellowship to decline having the tattoo at the end of filming. Um, so that the, 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 the word nine, I think, was written in another language that was tattooed onto them. He declined it, and it was instead offered to uh, who was credited as his stunt double, Brett Beatty, who did accept the tattoo. And in the last few years, it's come out that this stunt double, Brett Beatty, actually wasn't just his stunt double. Uh, he also ended up becoming a size double uh, and a body double and new versions of the word double that I'd never heard of before. Because <laughs> d- during filming, John Rhys Davis suffered many allergies from the prosthetics on the makeup. His eyes would swell out and it would leave him unable to do some filming. So Brett Beatty actually was almost co-credited, but he didn't get the co-credit, which has serviced in the last few years, which is quite a shame, really, given how long those films went on for and the stories involved. It's it's quite a shame that he's an unknown from that series. And I couldn't find a date specifically, but with himself moving to New Zealand where the films did, he resides in a Waikato. I couldn't get a date for that, but I, I would imagine that was around the time or just after Lord of the Rings came out. Oh, well, I'm sorry to his stunt double, but it still only counts as one. <laughs> so I have to say it. <laughs> no. oh, that's great. And um, also just very quickly talking about not just his second role of the rings, but sort of his career following then. Of course, he was the voice of Ent, uh, the Ent, sorry, Treebeard. And uh, this wasn't his only frame to voice work. He has had quite a career across the decades, voicing characters across games, films, series, uh, even adverts as well. Um, so he's sort of had a very successful voice career and he even did motion capture with Mark Hamill and Gary Oldman on, on a game in 2015, which I was very surprised by. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was quite surprised by the amount of credits he had, not hearing of anything in a non-arrogant term. And he essentially came out and did an interview saying, I get at least one script a week to consider and try to do as many things as I can in a year. You never know what's going to be good. I like to say yes to most things. I love work. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> um, but he, he can also be seen not just on Question Time, but he, he's on the convention circuit quite a fair amount, which is kind of where the really interesting story comes in for me. He's on a person, he's always reminded my granddad, I've been to many conventions, 
And every single time I see him at one, he's there in a full suit with a shirt done up top button. He's got a lovely tie on and he's very professional. And when he meets his fans, he actually takes a lot of time out with them. He speaks about what they do for a living. And he's very old school, which is why it's incredible to see him on the convention circuit, because that is not somebody I'd ever expect to see on a convention circuit. Um, but it's very interesting. And I really struggled to find interviews with him speaking about Bond. Um, but I did find a couple of him speaking about the future of Bond over the years. So I pulled a couple of quotes from them because not everything I think can be said, um, given his or should character. be repeated. Yes, that's the better term. Um, but he first spoke um, after the you know the infamous Daniel Craig post Spectre press tour. And uh, to the digital spy, so the problem with Bond actors is they don't realize they have a short shelf life in that role. They feel bitter and confused and they get stupid. They get involved with a character that is actually bigger than them and probably the biggest thing they will ever do. And that's a tough one. And uh, he went on to say other things about future Bonds. But then in 2019, an interview with The Express where he was promoting another film, but they asked him about Bond and he said, I love Timmy's Bond, of course, Timothy Dalton, but I really do think the current one is wonderful too. So he obviously backtracked on his initial Daniel Craig opinions as well. Um, and that kind of rounds it out with him talking about James Bond with his character and himself. Yeah, Pushkin's an interesting one, isn't he? I don't know if uh would have been interesting to see him come back, but um, you know, one and done, I think is uh is fine. He's got enough of a career. I think he, he's also done stuff in Marvel and DC as well, hasn't he? I seem to remember doing some research into him recently in the past. Yes, a lot of animated roles uh stemming yeah. from the late 80s as well. So he, he it wasn't just sort of post Lord of the Rings and he has very much been involved with those, and he even, I think, did a, a live-action project as well, whether he lended a voice to a live-action project. But he's done a lot for it, which, again, I find very interesting. Given his his upbringing with his sort of trained background, it feels, you know, in the sort of the same way Mark Hamill in the early 90s was still known as Luke Skywalker, and he didn't really get the credit for his voice acting until years that yeah. followed. It's really interesting seeing some of the older actors that were sort of not there from the beginning, but there that, you know, were also famous for, for live action performances. And again, there were so many credits. A lot of it's like smaller New Zealand's TV series as well. And as you said, you know, he just likes saying yes to work. Um, the capacity, the quality of those projects, I do not know. And there's too many to, to even find out. Right. Let's move on then to another what was a bit of a two for the price of one. This one, Mark. Yes, uh, Purvis and Wade, or Pervert and Swade, as they sometimes are jokingly referred to. But yes, uh, Robert Wade, Rob Wade and Neil Purvis, who have written uh, or been credited with the last seven Bond films, more or less. Um, and they, they're kind of been uh, quite instrumental to the success and the backbone of the Craig era. But they, they came on board on, uh, I believe it was World Is Not Enough. Um, and at the time, I think it's, it's indicative of what Barbara Broccoli, producer, often does. She keeps her eye on a lot of social cinema, social cause cinema. And there was a cracking, brilliant film that ended up being used in schools and universities on various curriculums called Let Him Have It, which was a 1991 courtroom drama about a gross mistrial where a, a guy with learning difficulties was accused of murder and I, I believe he ended up uh, hanging for it and it was one of the films that put uh, Chris Eccleston on the um, on, on the radar and it was as I say it was like these social realist early 90s movies that around the same time as Once Were Warriors which uh, Barbara Broccoli noted for uh, what Lee Tamahori the director was doing and Lee Tamahori obviously um, 
uh, did Die Another Day with Purvis and Wade. Uh, both born in the early 60s, one in 61 and the other in 62. Not bad uh, timelines for uh, ending up writing Bond, so they're more or less the age of the film franchise. Uh, they went to University of Kent, which I, I presume it might still have, but it, it always had a really, really good English and film studies department. I remember going there uh, when I was looking at universities, and I really wanted to go there because at the time they were the guys that had written Let Him Have It, which was uh, kind of a big uh, big British film, especially for me and my sort of sixth form indie uh, British cinema obsessions at the time. Uh, but they met, as I say, they met at University of Kent and ended up becoming a writing double act. But their style and their tradition has often been, you know, they'll attend a meeting, they will go to Eon House and talk, but they'll split up and go in different coffee shops, different pubs, work on some material, then sort of bring it back to each other and then maybe swap. You look at what I've written, you look at what I've I've done and just kind of collaborate that way as as someone that's done screenwriting and as a writer I still find the idea of collaborating with someone absolutely terrifying because I just I just can't see it working but they do make it work <laughs> and obviously there's a hell of a lot of brilliant you know Gordon and Simpson the spring to mind there's a lot of great uh, writing partnerships there and these guys they, they sometimes, I mean, let's say they sometimes get a little flack if someone doesn't like anything of the last seven Bond films. It's, it's immediately Purvis and Wade's fault. And often, you know, it's, it's sometimes a surprise. It's the biggest surprise when Purvis and Wade are announced as doing the next Bond. They are the most surprised because they never take it for granted. In fact, if you ask anyone, any of the composers, directors, they never take it for granted that they will be back. And that likewise goes for purpose and wade um i think they've been way more influential in the course and the quality of particularly the craig era than than we give them credit and if again this is assumption that oh they start but they're not good enough and other people come in that's that's not how it works it's not how it works in many a big film franchise or even an indie script um but they have had joining them through the bond process an amazing team of writers who have just shed a different light Purvis and Wade bring the light of those pan, those dusty old Fleming pan paperbacks that are piled up in the, in their script meetings that are moth-eaten and they, they will refer to them and there's always something. I'm glad they did the, the Garden of Death recently because that was always the, they often referred to You Only Live Twice. There's always photos of Rob, Rob Wade writing a Brosnan script and he'd have You Only Live Twice paperback sort of in the corner of the desk. Um, they did a great, great film in uh, 2005 called Stoned, which looked at Brian Jones, the, uh, the Rolling Stone who didn't make the end of the 60s. And it was a, it's one of the best David Arnold scores as well. I urge you to try and catch the score. But it's, it's cinematically introduced a little actor who I think played, oh, my Rolling Stones cast list has gone dry. Uh, but anyway, Ben Wishaw crops up in the film. Oh, it was Keith Richards. He crops up. Um, in, in that one and it was kind of one of the first films where ben wishaw became a thing but the guys as I say they've worked with john logan paul haggis jez Butter, butterworth uh, phoebe waller bridge scott z burns they have worked with a lot of writers who don't get acknowledged in headlines or don't get screen credits and i feel that they're often they create the spine they create the drive they create the beats and they're you know, when, when someone comes on to a Bond, you know, when Phoebe Waller-Bridge came on to start work on um, on No Time to Die, that was actually something that was already happening way before the announcement of the headline. And it's not, as I say, it's not that they can't do it. It's just that they understand, and that, that's very generous and creative as writers, that there are other people that can bring a different echo here. So Phoebe Waller-Bridge comes in 
and you know how we're going full circle here she uh, touches up out of the armor so to speak and gives those gives that whole sequence a a beat and an economy and a zing and in fact the whole film you know when phoebe waller bridge came in to work with um rob and neil on the film it wasn't she she worked on all of the daniel craig stuff as well and gave it some bite and some sense of fresh comedy um they've they did plunkett and mclean which was another f- 1999 sort of dick dick turpin type highwayman film that i really loved at the cinema at the time when it came out it came out at that end of and in fact, they were very much part cinematically. They were part of that '90s Britpop cinema, which we 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 just assume is sort of shallow grave and train spotting and full weddings. But no, it was Plunkett and McLean. It was Human Traffic. It was Let Him Have It. And Purvis and Wade were often key to a lot of that. Um, they also did the Bond spoof that is Die Another Day. No, sorry, that is Johnny English, um, <laughs> and and kind of took the took the rise out of Bond and every, all its accoutrements. And I, I think that must have been great fun for them because they could do all the things that they couldn't get away with with Brosnan and Craig. Um, Len Dayton is one of their big big obsessions. They did a um, they coasted adaptation SSGB of one of his works, and I've. I know Robert Wade socially a little bit and I, I'm not going to say what there is, but the projects they've not done, the projects that were so near to production are just beautiful. And I was like, Oh my God, why was that not made? One was a Riviera type caper, like a jewelry caper. The title alludes me now, but it had a cracking title. And I remember talking to them about it and they, they were doubtful it would happen, but I mean, and that's the thing. A lot of writers will work on it, whether it's a bond, they will work on it, leave a, thumbprint and move on and i i i who knows what the new era of bond will bring but every film every one of the last six bond films the assumption has been it won't be uh the two guys and they have come on board they've as i say they've been most surprised and i think they've they've done great things they kind of they helped steer no time to bed especially when it had there was a lot of stop and starts on the script there because danny boyle brought in john hodge they all parted company apart from some of uh, the production design team and um, the costume designer. And they've, they've often picked up the pieces on a bond and I think they don't get enough credit or praise for that. So yeah, again, big, big fans of the two guys and they, they're great fun when you meet them as well. They're, they, they're so sort of, I wouldn't say shy, but they're really unassuming. And I love, love them for that as well. They're, they're very interesting that I think I'm glad you mentioned that they're almost easy targets for, for criticism now. I think it's a shame because their impact on these films, on this series, and making the jump into the 21st century, covering Mm. two eras that Mm. couldn't be more different, and to Mm. me personally, having success in both of those eras, um, I I think it's sort of incredible. And, you know, as you said, not everybody expects to come back. And, of course, if uh, we'd have had the original No Time to Die, of course, the Daniel Boyle one, we wouldn't have had these at all. And it's really interesting. And you just got to also ask the question, there's a reason why they, they do get brought back. And it's because, you know, the broccolis have the trust in them. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important quality for making these these James Bond films. And I absolutely adore them. And, you know, whether they come back for a theatre, I don't know. And I guess we'll all find out in the coming years. Mm, yeah, that's something else that often people say, oh, why are they back again? And, the, you know, there is some snippy online sort of greek chorus about these things but when you're working on a film whether it's a a student low budget film at the university of kent in the 80s like they were doing or no time to die at pinewood cuba and everywhere else 
it's you need to know you can get on with people you need to know that they will bring the goods that they won't flip out when you go guys we need a 15th redraft this month on that you know that 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 the broccolis can bring them in and not panic or worry or you know the broccolis they can words... spend their time worrying about something else, right? Yes, they can yeah, pass that exactly. on to the people they know that will do what they've asked them to. Yeah, because um, often you, you're, I, you know, I've written screen feature length screenplays, and it's it's hard work. Uh, it must be easy when there's just two of them, but no, uh, it's it's hard work. <laughs> and the one thing you learn really, really quickly is you don't write, you rewrite. You know, anyone that's a writer is a rewriter, and I think that's where their skills um, get forgotten or overlooked. They they clearly can take a Bond script and, oh, my God, we've lost this location, but we've got a new de- sponsorship with a helicopter, a car or a new bottle of champagne. Can you can this be worked in? What do you think you can do? And they go to the Fleming novels. They go to their inspiration. You know, Len Dayton, as I said, Len Dayton, one of the 60s kind of literary peers of Fleming. They love him too, and you can see all of it in in their work. And I, I would love them to do more. I, that's a great point. I would love to see what they did in the third third age. I, I think there's a the trilogy of Purvis and Wade with Bond is maybe not complete yet. No, uh, and they're still you know what did you say they're sixties, so they're uh, at the same age as the movies. You know, hmm. Richard Maybaum was writing Bond films up until. You know, seventy was he in his seventies when he wrote uh, oh. *License to Kill*. So um, that's interesting as well. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, they've learned as well. I mean, I, *World Is yeah. Not Enough* is my least favorite Bond film. I find it hammy and over the top. It's still a great Bond film, but it's there's too much. There's too many characters in it, and you can see that they've learned that. So it's pared down a bit in *Die Another Day*, and then the time we get to *Casino Royale*, it's re- the, the character scope is really shrunk, and I, I like seeing that that self-awareness that they've learned from their mistakes. And also I remember um, when I did Catching Bullets, I I kind of wasn't kind about one bomb for more a bit in it. And Robert Wade privately said to me, no, no, you and I said, I'm so sorry I said that. And he went, no, no, you nailed what was wrong with that. So they're quite, you know, they're able to see what their mistakes were and more importantly learn. And that's why, that's why producers bring back writers. They, they know that they're trusted that they can learn, that they can support. And yes, we can worry about other things because Rob and Neil are in two separate pubs with two dirty old pan Fleming paperbacks. <laughs> and Cubby obviously trusted Richard uh, Maybaum. So, um, you, you know, I think that they obviously learn a lot from from him and uh, keeping that continuity. Yeah. Um, and ke- and keeping it's almost a- like a continuation of that, isn't it? Yeah, keeping an in-house team of writers, whether it's Purvis and Wade or Maybaum, keep or even Michael Wilson. That's that's something for another discussion. Michael Wilson's writing input into the Bond films is grossly overlooked. His sense of story economy and getting to the beats. Likewise, Richard Maybaum. But th- those there's often sort of the the stalwarts, the the regulars that work on Bond, who then will work alongside a newbie. You know, whether it's Tom Mankiewicz or or uh, John Logan, you know, John Logan wrote all the the the, the queer silver stuff in Skyfall. So I, I said to Rob, congratulations on having the line about why do you think this is my first time? You know, <laughs> every gay guy in that screening literally got to their feet and started applauding. And and they said, no, no, that wasn't us. That was John Logan. And we were so glad he could come in. So, you know, often writing a bond is a mixture of the familiar, I, I wouldn't say old and new, but the, the familiar and, and the new. And um for that reason alone, maybe they might still be in the mix for Bond 26. I would think so. 
Right, so let's end this podcast with a look at a character. Uh, P is for Pepper, Sheriff J.W. Pepper. That's played by Clifton James in Live and Let Die in The Man with the Golden Gun, From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. Um, so uh, J.W. Pepper, uh, introduced in Live and Let Die, and then returned for Man with the Golden Gun. Now, I found this quite amusing, but apparently United Artists ran a For Your Consideration campaign to have... <laughs> Uh, Clifton James nominated for a Best Supporting Actor at the 1974 Academy Awards, which would have been incredible. But interestingly, uh, he always played like these Southern rednecks, but actually he lived in New York and was, um, by all accounts, quite well, quite well uh, to do guy. So it would have been, um, yeah, quite a stretch for him. But um, yeah, the character of Pepper was that the the story of the film is that he was inspired by. Um, a corrupt, uh, corrupt lo local uh, rural sheriffs that Guy Hamilton had encountered on a road trip across America. Um, and Tom Mankiewicz um, saw that idea and brought him in to break up that boat chase sequence in Live and Let Die. That's that's the official history of it. Um, uh, we covered a lot of this in our Live and Let Die episode, so you can return to that uh, to get more on um, the boat and uh, the boat sequence and, and J.W. Pepper. The actor Slim Pickens, who was uh, in Doctor Strangelove, he had been considered to play J.W. Pepper, um, but the role was given to Clifton James by the casting director, Marion Doherty, who had seen him in a play called All the King's Men. Uh, uh, Clifton James said he'd read it in about five minutes. They gave me the part and I flew to New Orleans the very next day. So he was just sort of flown straight into the, the shoot there. Um, Mankiewicz later said that all those Southern sheriffs looked there, down there looked all looked exactly like Clifton James. Clifton would say, hello, boy. And all these sheriffs would be keep laughing and say, God damn, you're funny. Later on, Clifton James said, I just thought it was uh, another job. I certainly didn't think it was anything special. I really didn't. I wasn't a big James Bond fan. I'd only seen one with Sean Connery. Of course, once I did it, I realized it was a big deal. However, there is a, t a slight twist to the tale because uh, earlier this year in 2022, um, the guys at MI6 published an article uh, titled The Genesis of JW. I don't know if either of you read this. No. Um, no. no. So what they had discovered was that um, the character of JW Pepper had taken a little bit more than inspiration from uh, another source, not quite the origins that Mankiewicz and um, Guy Hamilton had talked about, I think it probably played into it. It may not be the the origin of it, but basically there was a character um, that had appeared in a series of TV commercials in the USA in the two years before Live and Let Die was made. Um, so there was an actor, Joe Higgins, he'd been born in Louisiana and he was cast to play the role of Sheriff J.W., uh, for a series of commercials for Dodge cars. And over the course of the campaign for this new Dodge Challenger, this Sheriff JW in the adverts, he sort of pulls drivers over for having racing cars. Um, and then he learns how affordable the cars are. And he starts to tell the deputies about these amazing cars. But he's very much a carbon copy of JW Pepper as we get him in, in Live and Let Die. As they uh, Dodge saw the success of these TV spots for their um, cars, they hired the actor, uh, Joe Higgins, who played JW, to be their safety sheriff. And he toured the country 
uh, appearing at motor shows and conventions, as well as speaking, uh, appearing at high schools uh, about driving, promoting the use of seatbelts. And you can watch these adverts online. So they're the, the Dodge car and they're, um, yeah, the, the, the character is called Sheriff JW. Um, so they, it's thought that they were, in, they saw this character and thought he'd be a great fit for the Bond film, but couldn't use the actor um joe higgins in the um film because the character was associated with dodge and the film already had a product placement deal with chevrolet so that is another wrinkle to the tail of jw pepper um, i've always thought he, he always reminded me of rod steiger a bit in in the heat of the night because that was kind of yes. the character at the time that deep south slightly rotund phil mitchell sized uh sheriff um i i think there's there's a lot of influences coming into play there and Definitely. You, you're going to mention Superman too, yeah? It's coming. It's Good. coming. Right. I, I will. I will uh, chew on my tobacco here and just uh, wait for that moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, Clifton James. He was a, a, a very decorated World War II veteran. Actually, he had served for four and a half years in the South Pacific and was decorated with Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Hearts, Presidential Union Unit Citation combat infantry badge and six battle stars so he really did his, his uh, tour of duty there uh, after leaving the military he started acting in a college in oregon and married in 1948 but his acting career then spanned five decades including uh, appearances on stage tv and film uh, credits on tv include dallas a tv series and his films include superman 2 bonfire of the vanities um the last detail He's in The Untouchables, another mention for that film. And he's also in Eight Men Out. And his last film credit came in 2006, uh, Raising Flag, that film was called. But like I said, often being cast as a Southerner, but he was lived in around New York for most of his career. He said about peer, appearing in James Bond, I've done so many more things that I think are more important, but it turned out to be the most famous thing I ever did. And now I'm a, I'm a damn legend. People still stop me and say, on oh, who's sad? And James... <laughs> He remained a big Bond fan um, and talked even saw the Daniel Craig things, he, Daniel Craig films. He said, I saw Daniel Craig in the last one and he was awfully good. He sadly died in 2017 at the age of 96. And Roger Moore paid tribute saying, terribly sad to hear Clifton James has left us as J.W. Pe Pepper. He gave my first two Bond films a great fun character. Mm. So there we have it. He's a, a quite a rare occurrence in the Bond world of an actor playing a character that appears in two films mm, and only his, two films. Yeah. His second appearance is a little, let's say racially delicate. You're, you're like, Oh, you know, Bond despite appearances avoids a lot of, Oh, that's, that's aged bad. It's not, there are, there are enough moments, but there's not loads like a lot of cinema and eras could depict. But yeah, his, some of the, the, the comments in man with the golden gun are a little icky, but that, that's, that's the, passage of time not, not nothing that was wrong at the time i would love to have seen him a bit more i wonder if we could if we could recast him that's maybe a a an online thing who yeah if, if sheriff pepper came back who would play him now um <laughs> i don't know jack black no no it's too easy it's gotta be someone cleverer oh it's yeah. probably like josh gad or something wouldn't it oh god yeah Je pepper jr yeah i'd like to see that <laughs> matthew mcconaughey done sorted <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. If, if Miles Te Miles Teller's my future dream, Felix Leiter, so him opposite Matthew Ooh. McConaughey, Sheriff. There we go, sorted. 
That's it, have, job done. You could just have him come from Top Gun. Miles Teller, that'd be perfect. Same costume, done. You know, the one thing I love about Sheriff Pepper is I was never the biggest fan of his characters, but it's until last year I grew a more respect for him. And I think he's got severely underrated chemistry with Roger Moore. They're a oh. great double act in their own right. And it's it's very rare for Bond to have that when it's not Bond with Felix or a villain, if that makes sense. Yeah. he. I mean, he really brings the sequences he's in to life. They really sort of start to sparkle when he's on screen, regardless of what you think of him. There are like more incongruous characters that pop up in Bond, but he is nothing if not forget- unforgettable, I think. Um, and for that, I, I, I do like him. But I think, Mark, you're right. In <laughs> Man with the Golden Gun, it gets pushed a little bit too far. Um, yeah, but then it's it's him. also, I mean, that's a Mankiewicz thing. Mankiewicz loved to send up America. And uh, Clifton, mm. Clifton was one of his best vehicles for that. So, you know, he's 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 sending up the deep south, slightly racist sheriff, and it's a great beat because that's it's actually quite a brave beat as well to sort of, you know, have this very white Roger Moore and this this you know, grizzled old spitting sheriff, and, and and it's the it's the it's the black fraternity of actors and stuntmen in that film that 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 become the heroes and become the drive of it, whereas he's just there. As a sort of, I think there's, I think it's not accidental that there's that the thing with the elephant and the Republicans in Thailand. You know, <laughs> yes. That's this whole thing. I can't remember his wife's name on the top of my head, but he's, the way he just says his wife's name, I'm just like, oh, I, we've all slightly met those those people and those uh, those attitudes. But yeah, that's that was Mankiewicz spoofing America and spoofing that that sort of uh, post Nixon hang-ons, which you know you could say is quite a Trumpy thing. I. I I would think yeah. I want to think Sheriff Pepper wouldn't be a Trump voter. Is it make Louisiana great again? Like I can't <laughs> see him doing that. <laughs> it's a good question. It's like the, it's like gullible, isn't it? And I think it'd be interesting to see how to fit into it. Well, I'm almost sad that Brendan's coming back next week because you two have been excellent <laughs> guests. Thank you very much for joining us on the Age Dead podcast. What it's are you working on at the moment? Um, on Cinema Server, we are just past the halfway point in a Steven Spielberg retrospective. So every single Tuesday, we are going through his directed films uh, in chronological order. So if you're a fan of Steven Spielberg or blockbusters or the film industry, come on over, have a look at that, alongside many other things, TV reviews, news discussions, and new releases. But mainly Spielberg. Lots of James Bond talk in the Spielberg films, of course. Indiana Jones being created off the back of not being to do it, be able to do a James Bond film. Hmm. Yeah, I can recommend the Last Crusade episode. It's uh, it's very good. Yeah, we have two very good guests on there, both called Tom. One might be on this video, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and Mark, what are you up to at the moment? Uh, apart from losing my mind trying to move house, but also in happier ways planning for a big California trip. So I'm going to check out the facilities at uh, Drax Enterprises. Um, but nice. I, I, I'm circling a third book that might be bond shaped but with a little difference um also writing for that great institution is yahoo entertainment thank you tom um and yeah just i've also uh, been a consultant producer on a new bond documentary that i think people will be talking about in sort of a few months to come called the other fellow which is a really interesting look at what happens if you actually call james bond um so i've been glad to sort of help that one out the gates a little bit in recent times Great. Well, we're hoping to speak to the people behind that film soon as well. So, yeah, you should, uh, yeah. yes, we will. Um, but yes, so uh, if people want to get hold of us, if you want to email the show to let us know um, some of the trivia we got wrong, some characters that appeared more than uh, that twice by the same actor, then you can email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. 
or you can find us on social media at James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where you'll find us uh, chatting away on about all things Bond. So, uh, just leaves me to say thank you, George Aldridge. No, thank you so much for allowing me to come on. And thank you, Mark O'Connell. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you. And the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast is hosted and produced by Tom Butler and Brendan Duffy. With music by Tom Ingemals and artwork by Helen Dolly. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? (laughs) I've never done that before. Neither have I, actually. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.